Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Mullican Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, in our last three episodes, we took a three-part jaunt into an Avengers story where we saw Magneto and the Toad reforming the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, recruiting Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch through manipulation and taking them away from the Avengers. Uh, we got to interview Tony Isabella and Hussein Rashid and Anne Nascenti, uh, and it was a really fun uh, time, all three episodes. I hope you had a great time listening. We're gonna take a step back into Pietro and Wanda's earlier history today, back when they were part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in one of those side stories that was not an X-Men title. Today, we're gonna be reviewing the first story in Strange Tales number 128. Now, back then, Strange Tales uh, starred both the Human Torch and Doctor Strange in every issue. This is just the Human Torch story for those of you that want to follow along. It's just called Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, and it's from January 1965, uh, written by Stan Lee with pencils by Dick Ayers and inks by Frank Giacoya. Uh, before that, however, we are going to introduce our very special guests. Uh, we are so excited to have Steve from X is for podcast here with us. And it's uh, Steve Duda, correct? Hi, Steve. How are you? Hello, uh, it's me. I'm from Access for Podcasts. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I, I'm happy to see Chad again. Chad and I got to do a short segment on our pod one time, and now I am happily returning the favor. Have a nice so, day. I'm so happy to have you here. And then we are thrilled <laughs> to welcome uh, Josh Trujillo back. Josh, we haven't seen you in a while. How you been, man? Uh, living the dream. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, for those of you that remember Josh, Josh created the Gay Captain America uh, uh, for Marvel and has written other work, including Hulkling and Wicklin, Wiccan for Marvel. Wicklin, listen to me. Uh, but we are thrilled to have Josh back with us. And then our featured guest for today is uh, uh, a man I've been reading for many years, and I'm so happy to have him here. It's Mr. Joshua Hale Fialkov. How are you, Joshua? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm so on. good. I'm happy to be here. That's so nice. I, I always find it amazing that people read my books at all um, and that I have not just disappeared. Like, I just assume that I don't exist anymore. Well, you have quite the career, so don't be super Thank surprised. Huh. Uh, for all three of these gentlemen here today, uh, well, I don't know your pronouns yet. For all, all three of the people here with us today, uh, we had this podcast scheduled previously a few weeks back, and then I had a family crisis. So I would like to apologize to each of you, but thank you for your willingness to reschedule uh, and record with us this time. Uh, things are going much better in that particular crisis that was taking place at the time, uh, which we won't talk about publicly. So let me have everybody introduce themselves today. Um, I'm going to have you each let us know your gender pronouns. Uh, where we might know you from, even though I just said some of it in my introductions. And then the question I have for everybody during your introduction today is, uh, based on today's ridiculous issue, uh, name a time when you were rejected and you did not handle it well. Uh, let's go in the order of Steve, Josh, and then Joshua. Is it okay if I call Josh Trujillo, Josh, and Joshua Fialkov, Joshua? That way I can distinguish yeah. between the two of you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so Steve, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name is Steve, and uh, I use they and them pronouns. Thank you very much. But I also accept gentle them. Um, I, you might know me from being unhinged on Twitter um, nearly 24 hours a day. Uh, that's probably what I'm best known for at this point. Um, I do regular podcasting on Moon Knight and various X-Men titles, and most recently, Defenders, on which uh, Chad joined us, I believe, um, for X's for Podcast. And you can also find some of my 
less unhinged rants over on uh, X of Words, where I've been blessed to be a guest a few times on their podcast. And I don't, I've been racking my brain trying to think of like a rejection that I didn't take well. I generally take rejection pretty well. Um, I'm not saying I don't get rejected a lot. He's like, so I've I, never been rejected, so I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> Well, it's not it's not often in terms of things because I you know I don't do a lot of things personally, but I <laughs> racking racking my brain to think of a rejection that I didn't take well. I'll tell you one thing. I this time I, I, I think I took it well, but I was just like put out by it for like an extremely long time. I did take somebody on a date one time to um a fir- a first date to a fancy movie theater where we saw um two thousand one A Space Odyssey in celluloid gloriously on the film and I was like, This is like a really this is a really cool idea. <laughs> for state because i was like taking myself out for a date essentially <laughs> and she had not seen the movie ever before and was not interested it was i think extremely boring and confusing maybe <laughs> and i did not get a date and, and like, he was probably it might right be it might be the least romantic movie it might be the least romantic <laughs> movie ever made like it's yeah it's, maybe <laughs> it's definitely not a first date movie i yeah, don't think definitely. just about anybody unless they are like hey i really love 2001 a space odyssey on film yeah so yeah, I didn't. It's not like I didn't take that well. I was just like, yeah, that figures. <laughs> but I was unhappy about it for sure. That's the best I can do. No, you did great. Uh, and then uh, Josh, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I'm Josh Trujillo. I'm a comic book and video game guy. Um, like you said, I worked on Gay Captain America, Aaron Fisher, and I've worked on Hulkling and Wiccan, or as my autocorrect likes to call them, Hulking and Wicca. Um, constantly tries to correct me. I'm like, I swear I'm right about this. Um, so anyways, uh, and then beyond that, uh, rejection, you know, once I applied for a job at the Red Robin and they rejected me and it was really heartbreaking because I thought I was overqualified and maybe they didn't fire, didn't hire me because I was overqualified, but it still stung and I still won't go to Red Robin anymore as a result. You're like, I lowered myself to applying for this job. <laughs> I'm applying for this job. Didn't work out. Were you doing this... it just for the tower of uh, onion rings? Yeah. That's you... really, the, really the remarkable part. Very home, I think, is how they pay you. Taking this appetite to Applebee's now. Mm-hmm. Good riddance. This is not my rejection story today, but in college when I was 22, I applied for a job. I think it was the macaroni grill and uh, as a waiter and they offered to hire me as a bus boy and I was like I am not a 16 year old acne ridden teenager and I will not take your job and I had a very poor attitude about it <laughs> I did not handle it well so I I, uh, I can understand uh, and then let's go to Joshua hi um, I'm Joshua Hill Fialkov if, if we weren't here right now with another Josh you could just call me Josh um, uh, what do I do uh I was a com- I'm a comic book writer. I do. I did predominantly uh, like did a ton of creator own stuff, and then I did like four or five years working for Marvel and DC um, until it broke me emotionally and spiritually. Um, and now I do. So I do creator own comics, although it's been a while now. Um, and I work in TV. I've worked in video games. Um, I do like. I literally have. I've worked in every. I think I've worked in every form of mass media. I have not worked in TikTok. That is my only TikTok's the real challenge now. Now I have to find a way as a as a middle-aged white dude to like really connect with an audience on TikTok. And I don't quite know how to do that because I also don't know how to look at TikTok because I'm actually that old now. It's very sad for me. Nothing makes me feel older than TikTok. Like, oh, what has happened? Just a uh, 
Do you have a rejection story for us? Um, yeah, mine. I, I, I had, I, I had to choose between a, a date and a and a job. I think I'll do the job one, because um, the date one, I'm just a dick. Um, the job. So I grew up in a suburb of Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up in for any zombie fans. I grew up in Monroeville, which is where the Monroeville Mall of Dawn of the Dead is from. So like I worked in that mall. Um, and we had a little AM radio station that was the like first alternative rock station in pretty much the tri-state area. And from the time I was 12, I wanted to work there. And so I found out one day where it was and I started just going. Like I would just show up and like beg to work there. And uh, if you think my voice is high now, imagine what it was like pre-puberty. It was really, really far up there. Um, and uh, the, the manager was just like, yeah, we're not going to hire you. Like, come back when you're an adult. And so I went back for like literally every probably two weeks. I went back for years. Um, and then I think by the time I was 14, um, I mean, 14 and a half, 15, somewhere around there, um, they had finally, they had like run out of money. So everybody was working as volunteers, like as community service, essentially. Um, and they had lost like three or four people all at once. And I walked in on that day and he was like, can you do weekends? And I was like, I, I can do anything. I will drop out of school to do this. Um, so it was a long drawn out rejection, but then I got to be an unpaid radio DJ for the better part of two years. Um, and then the manager tried to rob the station and blame it on all of the teenagers who worked there. It was amazing. Like the cops showed up at our houses and it turned out it was him. And we found him cause we all hung out at the same record store that he brought all the stuff that he stole to try and resell. <laughs> and he's nuts. like, he's like standing there with like crates of records. And we're all like, Hey man. And he's like, these are my records. They're, they're the records for the station. And just kind of ran away. It was oh delightful. So, yeah. Uh, and then finally, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I, uh, I have lots of rejection stories at this point in my life. I don't, I'm not really phased by rejection. I kind of find it amusing but there were times earlier in life where that was not the case. And one time in my early 30s, I was out at a dance club, uh, newly out, and a pretty cute guy came up and started dancing with me. And I, I was there with several friends. And uh, he goes, and I quote, after dancing with me, he goes, all of your friends are really hot, but I prefer you because I like average guys. <laughs> no. I was like, just, did, did you leave? And I had words and I was very <laughs> upset. Oh my gosh. And it was very awkward. But literally by the next morning, I was just laughing about it because it's such a ridiculous story. Uh, so, uh, can, I add, can I add a second rejection story? Because you awoke something within me. Yes. So, once someone made a Build a Bear for me as a breakup gift. Oh, God. <laughs> still have the Build a Bear. And it was one of the most thoughtful gifts anyone has given to be like, dress it up like me. And like, it looked like, you know, me as a Build-A-Bear. And I was like, this is so thoughtful. And he's like, I just wanted to give you something before we break up. And I was like, what? So anyway, I, no Build-A-Bear, no Red Robin. That's my role. You know, I'm glad you thought that that was very thoughtful because I would have been a little frightened by this cursed object that somebody breaking up with me had just given dressed dress as me. <laughs> Speaking as a therapist, which is my day job, there's something that happens with people when we experience rejection where just like the ugliest, most bitter parts of ourselves come out. And I often, when I when I see clients handling rejection poorly, I'll often think of my kids, right? So like 
when my 10 year old was eight and I'd be like, hey, you need to finish your peas. And his response would be something like, well, fine. I'm never eating any dessert ever again or playing with my toys. And I'm like, whoa, all I did was say, eat your peas. <laughs> so I think we have this like very petulant, like child, like kick the can down the road part of us sometimes that comes out. And I think we see a little bit of that in today's issue. Uh, we're going to spend the first part of today's podcast getting to know uh, Joshua. Joshua, <laughs> it's so weird using your full name. <laughs> okay. It, it feels like you're my mom. So, you know, and tell me I don't call enough and that I'm too fat and that I should really try harder. And why haven't I written letters to Steven Spielberg to tell him I'm Jewish and so therefore he should hire me? Get that a lot. It's really, it's a thing. I'm not, she's been saying it for 20 years. Rejection? You know, you know, I will say for her, like, in like, in my mom's defense for doing that, like all parents do, she kept telling me that a doctor that she saw had a son who was a TV writer and that I should call him. And I kept being like, ugh, I don't want it. This is ridiculous. I'm not doing that when I moved out here. She's like, just do it. It'll be fine. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to like call in a stupid favor. I can't do it. And uh, finally, uh, years later, I found out that uh, that writer who was his son is Mitch Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development. And I totally should have called. <laughs> I totally blew it. So I guess I should go write a letter to Steven Spielberg saying, hi, I'm Jewish and uh, see what happens. Uh, experiencing rejection from our own parents is its own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, now, Josh, you have a pretty long and storied career, uh, which I am not calling you old as I say that because I'm pretty sure I'm older than you. But when we when we look at uh, the amount of work that you've accomplished and the types of things you've done, it's a pretty impressive resume. You've been nominated for multiple awards, won some awards. Uh, you've done some really incredible work. Uh, because the podcast today is X-Men themed, I'm going to focus some of my questions toward you uh, on the theme of your Marvel or X-Men work more yeah. specifically, which uh, you described a minute ago as soul crushing. <laughs> no, Marvel, you know, Marvel wasn't that bad. Mostly DC. DC is a very, 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 very hard place to work or was. I, it's much better now from what I've heard. Okay, good, good. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, when, I won't I won't ask questions there, but it's hard to go through experiences <laughs> like that. Uh, let me ask you first, what is the if you if you choose chose one thing, what's the thing you've worked on that you're most proud of? Like across everything that I've done, like all my sure. all my stuff, um, I did a book. It's I mean I have two graphic novels that I did back to back. Um, one's called Tumor and one's called Echoes, and like one sort of like was was born out of the other one. Um, Tumor is uh, Tumors. You can get it from Oni Press. They did like a tenth or fifteenth anniversary edition, like God five years ago. Jesus, let's do another anniversary. It's not cool. Um, and uh, like both that and then and Echoes I did for um, Image uh, and Top Cow Minotaur. Um, both of them were like a version of like, this is this is me. Here's what I got. Like this is this is me shooting my shot and doing everything that I can and like using every skill I had to tell a story and like working with artists that I had like deep, meaningful relationships with and like telling stories that I didn't see getting told. Um, Cause they're both dealing with mental health. They're both dealing with um, tumors. Obviously it's about a guy with a brain tumor. It's a private eye who, who realizes he has a terminal brain tumor the day he gets his first, case in like a decade and so he's trying to solve the case before his head goes pop um 
and then Echoes is a guy with uh, schizophrenia who finds out on his on his father's deathbed that his father was a serial killer. Um, and after his dad dies, the murders start up again. Mm. And so the guy has to kind of like puzzle out if he's losing, like he's losing time. And if he's the one doing the murders, um, which both don't sound like they're super personal, but like both are very much about, cause I've, I've, uh, like my whole life, I've had lots of health problems. Like I'm incredibly sickly. Um, it's cool. I'm into it. I dig it. Um, <laughs> But like, so getting to kind of like talk about how, how people who are, how people are, who are ill or have challenges find ways to like harness them and to be eaten by them yeah. was like a very, it's a very like kind of cathartic experience. Um, because I think when you when you have lifelong ailments, like you just sort of feel I think a lot of the time you feel sort of swallowed by them. Um, and so getting to tell stories like that sort of like give you this chance to, to open up. And I honestly like and I'm not just doing it because it's a good bridge. Like it's 100 percent true. Like that's kind of why the X-Men works, too. Right. Like that's always why I like the X-Men is that the X-Men were just inherently about other. And I think no matter what. um you know, no matter what um, uh, metaphor you want to apply to it or how you want to stretch it, at the end of the day, like, they're, they're a group of characters who are always going to feel apart. And because of that apartness and because of they have this shared experience that no one who isn't a mutant will ever understand. And, like, that's such a powerful message. I think that's why once they sort of got past the initial Stan and Jack days and really figured out those characters... Like, I think that's why X-Men has been such a blockbuster for so long is I think it really does. It talks to the fact that all of us have these things that we we rely on or, you know, or blame or, you know, feel trapped by. And it's all about finding our place within all of that. I love a uh, complicated character. The X-Men is full of them. I'm only saying this because it's in my mind. Uh, in a few days, I'm recording our next trial episode, which is all about the blob. And I've just read the blob's whole history. And it's, it's dawning on me. There are particular characters like the blob who a descriptive word about a person becomes almost their entire identity. So for the blob, it's he's the he's the fat guy. Or even as we're introducing Josh, we're like, he created gay Captain America. Like the word yeah. gay just gets stuck to this person, even though he's so much more than that. Uh, when, you, when you're able to create uh, characters that have so much uh, depth and richness, uh, the way you sold both of those books makes me want to go read them now. Um, let me focus a little bit on your ex work and then uh, Josh and Steve at any point, feel free to, to come in with questions or comments uh, 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 anytime. So my, uh, uh, I have recently read through all of your Marvel work again. Uh, I don't, does, I read all of how it. Does, how does it hold up? Cause I, I have no memory. I have so little memory of it. I'm really trying. It depends it's, on it's the decent. story. Yeah. Uh, some of it holds up great. Some of it, uh, I think you have to take yourself back to that time to really yeah. appreciate it, what it was. And I'll tell you which ones I mean by which in just mm -hmm. a second. Uh, Steve, what were you going to say just then? Oh, I was just saying, like, yeah, I, I've also just read all of your Marvel work. And yeah, I think the vast majority of it still holds up. There's some stuff at the beginning that it's like, you're clearly a new writer. I'm mm -hmm. not going to against anybody. I <laughs> write a story to save my life. So one of your first X-Men specific works was in uh, a book called Rampaging Wolverine where you got to work with the writer Paco Diaz and it's Wolverine versus pirates. And it's so pretty. Uh, tell us a little bit about that story briefly. And then 
And then my follow-up question right after that is you also did a story in the back of X-Men to serve and protect number one with James Heron. That was all about Phantom X versus Batrock the Leaper. So let, let me hear just briefly about those two stories, Wolverine and the Pirates and uh, and Phantom X versus Batrock. I do like that I completely had, like, until you said them, I'm like, oh, yeah, those are things I did. Hey, look at that. <laughs> um, the, the Wolverine, like, I was psyched because, you know, I grew up, um, I look, I started reading comics during the black and white boom, right? So, like, my first comic I bought was the original black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issue nine. I think I have it somewhere on a shelf. Um, and so, like, I always sort of, I read those and then I discovered the anthology magazines like the the warren you know creepy and eerie and um vampirella and uh, you know even back to the tales from the crypt etc um and those books were actually the things that really like drew me and the first marvel comic that i was actually sort of amazed by was epic illustrated which was their magazine their black and white magazine um and it was all creator owned e or as creator owned as things were back then in that I'm just guessing Marvel never sent a contract and nobody knew what the hell was going on um, <laughs> until money was involved and then <laughs> they told them. Um, but like doing, um, getting to do a story for that kind of like setting and style and, you know, having a little more freedom and tone and letting it be a story outside of, outside of continuity um, is so like it's it's so freeing and i think it was probably the second thing i wrote i think i'd written other stuff that didn't come out yet but like i think it was at least the second thing i wrote for them um and just like getting to play with that character because again like wolverine was i i'm exactly the right age for wolverine like the like the my i genuinely and i've read it recently and it's not the greatest comic of all time but like in my head when i'm like the greatest comic of all time is the the issue of the Wolverine solo series when Gray Hulk shows up and Wolverine is just like pulling pranks on him. And it's like this, right? Like where you just, he wakes up, he wakes up and he has giant purple, he has purple pants and that's it. His suits are gone. Delightful. Just delightful. (laughs) Um, So like, he's a character that like, I just, I have that, that, you know, fascination with my first X-Men comic is the, is I think it's one fifty one with the Mark Silvestri cover with, Wolverine crucified on the X on the cover. Um, so like that stuff is sort of like my, that's my sweet spot. Um, and getting to tell the kind of story that felt more like an indie, like an indie book than a, you know, mainstream comic was sort of really what, what drove me. And I like, that wasn't when I first started doing comics, like that wasn't what people wanted. I think Bendis, I think Bendis, Brian K. Vaughn, um, Brubaker and Rucka, in particular are the ones who are sort of the change makers who made it much more acceptable to do stuff like that and have it not just be things that are in the corner, but actually a big part of what the universes are. Um, and that like those changes were just starting, like as I was kind of starting into mainstream comics. Um, and so like, I definitely, I, I got to ride on those waves and it was very, I'm very grateful to all those guys. Uh, so- the, oh, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Oh, I, I just had a question. You mentioned uh, enjoying playing around in like out of continuity stuff where you can kind of go wild. Was that what drew you to doing Ultimate Comics and kind of closing out the Ultimate Comics line? Because when I was reading that, I was like, I've, I've heard this person is a horror comics writer. I wonder what this will be like. like yeah, oh, it's horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Straight so, up free with 
horror, the kind you could not do in main continuity. Before you answer that, I actually want to set this up really quickly. A lot of our listeners are not super deep Marvel continuity nerds. So in the year 2000, they tried to reclaim some of what made some of their original characters special. Spider-Man at this point has been married and cloned and maybe has a baby. So Brian Michael Bendis uh, launched a new teenage Spider-Man in an alternate universe that they called Ultimate, the Ultimate Universe or Ultimate Spider-Man. And they worked really hard to keep Spider-Man true to the essence of the Spider-Man character. But then they launched Ultimate X-Men, which it didn't seem to try to capture the essence of X-Men. It just seemed to try to make the X-Men as crazy and weird and as possible. The mythos is completely different. A lot of crazy shit happens. And then the Ultimate Universe ran for a really long time. Uh, Joshua was involved in helping shut that universe down <laughs> in a number of really uh, huge stories like Hunger and Cataclysm and a few others. Uh, uh, so yeah, Josh, tell us, or Joshua, tell us a little bit about, uh, how you got that gig and what it was like to, uh, destroy the ultimate universe. I mean, I was, uh, like the, the honest answer is that I'd come out of, that was right when I got, uh, fired off of all my books at DC and I was friends with the editor of the ultimate line. I was friends with Jonathan Hickman, who was writing the ultimate line and running it at the time. Um, I forgot Hickman did the Ultimates. That's right. Yeah. Um, I took over. So Sam Humphreys took over for him. And then I took over for Sam Humphreys on the regular on the main book, um, which is how I like slotted into just even getting in the universe at all. Um, and like it just sort of lined up for where I was schedule wise and where they were schedule wise that, you know, they needed they needed a me and I'm super fast and I'm like and on, I'm super fast. I write really quickly. Um, and I love the universe and know the universe and had been reading the universe consistently. Like those are the superhero comics that I sort of always followed and never missed. Um, so like I didn't have to do catch up. I didn't have to do research. Like I could just write the comics and I knew what was happening. Um, the irony being, of course, that then I had to shut the whole thing down. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, but I like this. This is, I want to keep doing this. Why are we, why are we stopping? This is so, no, please. Must um, be heartbreaking to get the call. Like, hey, we need somebody who can kill the Ultimates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah did you know that you were going to be like the Hatchet Man? Or are they like, just come on board. It'll be fun. And then you show up and it's like, oh, actually. I mean, like the conversations you have about that stuff are weird because they never want to say the line is failing or the line isn't selling enough or we have to do we have to do an event to save the line or we're going to do this to get rid of it. So they're like, no, no, we're going to do a big event. And the big event is going to really prop up the line. But you're like, but the big event is the end of the universe. <laughs> so it's not going to be much of an event, is it? Like if everything just goes away, it seems like it's not going to prop up the universe at all. Um, and then you combine that, like, it's funny freelancing and Josh, I don't know if you experienced this as well, but like a lot of, a lot of freelancing is like you get the the bits of information that the company and the editors are willing to tell you, right? Or the, that the company wants the editors to tell you. Then you get the information that the editors are telling you because they know like if you know slightly more, it's a little bit easier for them. And then there's the information you get from all the other creators. And like between all that information, you sort of can like make it all into an almost coherent picture of what's actually going on. So like I knew, I mean, and it was a way off, but I also knew they were doing that. There's, 
there was an event somewhere around then, and God help me, I don't remember it, but there was an event where they were collapsing universes, right? Where they were killing universes to try and make it so there was just one. Yeah, that was Jonathan. Right? That was Jonathan Hickman's uh, Secret Wars storyline. Yeah, so like with I knew the, that. Uh, what, they, what they call those incursions? Yeah, incursions. So I, only one would survive. So I knew that was coming. I knew that that I knew that that was going to be a thing with how they were going to play with. I think Miles Morales was the was the point was to do Miles Morales and then maybe do like the ultimate Reed Richards character, which is like such a freaking cool. Like they did such a great job with him. The maker. Um, yeah, yeah, they yeah, brought the him maker. into the main universe now. Um, yeah, so cool. Um, so like, like I didn't know they were going to cancel it, but it sure felt like it. But that also let me, you know, like my first Ultimates comic opens with, with Ultimate Hulk wearing two Infinity Gauntlets. Uh-huh. You know, so like, if the universe wasn't ending, that would not have been the thing. You know, if... Just- <laughs> Josh, can I tell you a crazy thing? Your comics are the only Ultimate comics I have ever read. So I started right off with the, the, the whole grabbing two Infinity Gauntlets and working with Bell Kang. I will say, uh, like, like, what is happening? Two of my favorite things that I've ever written, and then the execution, like the execution being perfect, are that page, and then in Ultimate Fantastic Four, there's I did I did the Ultimate Star Universe which is the Peter Porker universe that like Peter Porker from the Spider-Ham. Uh, now that people know who Spider-Ham is, who knew, who knew that that would become a thing. Um, and it opens with cat, with cat. I can't even say it. Captain America. Cause he's a cat. Um, America. Right. And he's wearing, nice. he's wearing the uniform of ultimate Captain America. And he's doing what is like the iconic page of Mark Millar's ultimates where he says the thing that makes no sense, which is that he's pointing at his head and saying, yeah. Um, does this a on my head stand for dog? And I'm like, God, that's amazing. That's I'm so proud of it. It's my favorite. You should that's be proud cool. of that one. That's that's a good one. Delightful. Um, and like, and like duck luck this, like I just got to do whatever they were, they were very checked out, which is when I do great. That's really my, my forte is when people aren't paying attention to me, I can really just get away with doing weird things. When you can lean hard into a pun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what were you yeah. saying, Josh? I'm sorry. Well, I think moderately, you know, yeah. that <laughs> that's how you get things in. Like, I, it's funny. Like when I was at DC, I wrote when I was doing my vampire, which is like clearly like every character in it has has like complex sexual relationships with each other. Like it's like the book opens with the hero and the villain having sex throughout New York City, like in different forms, like as wolves, as bats, as humans, as mist. Like they're just fucking the shit out of each other the whole time. And through all of it, the main character has like a like a, you know, an assistant, like a valet, a valet. Um who is clearly in love with him. Like he's clearly just completely in love with him. And he's there because he's in love with him and he supports him and he takes care of him. And like everything that goes wrong, he is always there and he's always with them. And so I wrote in the issue where that guy, you know, where that guy's going, like where they're, we're getting to the end game and like, essentially like Andrew's been turned evil and he's killing, like he's killing everyone around him. And you finally get to that moment where you have him and he finally tells him that he loves him. And my editor's called, and they're like, what is this? What do you mean? Like, he's gay? And I was like, did you not read the book? Like, he's gay? Yeah! Like, he's he, like, sits there and, like, nurses his wounds and, like, looks at him and tells him, like, you need to find somebody who cares for you while he's doing it. Like, it's, it's I mean, he's clearly, like, 
forlorn the entire series. They're like, no. Yeah, you can't do that. And you're like, who's reading this book that's going to be upset? There's nobody. <laughs> like, what person is reading this, like, a mature reader's barely involved with the superhero books book that has, like, an obscure character who nobody knows about? So, wait, the, the Miss Sex, that was, that was cool, or they were sleeping through that, too? <laughs> no, they're okay with that. That part, they're fine. That they have no problem because it was a it was a boy vampire and a girl vampire. So that that oh, part there. <laughs> yeah, if it's problem. straight or lesbian, it's fine. But if it's gay, we need to talk about it. Listen, they can fuck as dogs. Sorry, I don't know yeah. if I can say that word on no, no. Yeah. You can. But yeah, <laughs> good. They can fuck as dogs, but you know they got to be a boy dog and a girl dog. I yeah. get it. Now. Don't go. Just don't go crazy. Come on. Let's yeah. keep. <laughs> Some of the really fun stuff you did in your closure of the Ultimates universe. There's a lot of great uh, Galactus is Galactus. It's three words, which is. Silly, but great. Uh, you also that's Warren Ellis. That's what Warren Ellis does. You also gave us a female <laughs> Kang the Conqueror, who is uh, the Invisible Woman from mm -hmm. the future. Uh, we we got a lot of delicious moments there, and you made Quicksilver uh, one of the arbiters of the Ultimates Doom. And we're going to be talking about Quicksilver today, so I'll have some questions for you uh, about the difference between mainstream and Ultimate Quicksilver when we're doing our review today. I feel like they never used. They just didn't use him a lot in the Ultimate Universe. Like I feel like he was very underutilized. But he's also underutilized in the Marvel Universe. So sometimes. Yeah, so he, yeah, so he truly is both. <laughs> you really feel the echo of the character. Now, Josh, you have a particular love for Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, as I recall. Correct. Uh, me. This yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I've been fascinated with them recently. I feel like like we were talking about Quicksilver is usually underserved. And Wanda's usually a little overserved. Um, and I love their like dynamic. I love that, um, you know, uh, I'll probably talk about this more as we get into the issue, but I feel like Wanda is a bit of a mess for circumstances out of her control. You know, this power was kind of thrust upon her, and it's like a crazy, chaotic power. And she didn't ask to wait, like be raised uh, kind of in this like cloistered community that like terrorized her as a, thinking she was a witch and the person who's there to clean everything up is Quicksilver who does not have the temperament or the ability to like help her whatsoever but it's like them right it's like them against the world because like even when they're on the Avengers there's like this like hint of skepticism about them like oh former evil mutants like mm, let's keep them at arm's length and then it's with the X-Men they're like oh well you know you're really Magneto's kid so like we can't really trust you entirely either. So they really do only have like each other. And I think we see that in this issue, actually, we're going to go over. Though it's a short storyline, I think it kind of gets at the heart of like what their dynamic is and like why they're so close with each other. Yeah, that's how it's been set up right from the beginning. Uh, now, Joshua, as we are uh, uh, concluding the interview portion, the most surprising X work that you've done, I think, is you did a one shot all about Marvel Girl. It's the only book to ever be called Marvel Girl. All about- Is, it uh, is that true? Really? There's never yeah. been, look at me. Look at no, me go. Nobody, there's never been another book called Marvel Girl. Uh, uh, all about Jean Grey, who was the most overlooked and underutilized of the original 60s cast. Uh, we've had a lot to say about her treatment over these books because we're reviewing the 60s stuff. Uh, tell us about uh, how you got that story and what story you told in that issue, if you recall. I know it's been a minute. I, you know, I get like again. I, so my, uh, my dad's, uh, my dad's a child and adolescent psychiatrist, which is a very strange way to start this story. Um, <laughs> but stay with me. So, like, I, I come at stuff, and from the time I was like seven or eight, 
I would uh, score like he, you know, he gives the he gives the kids tests that they have to fill out, where it's just filling, you know, circling, you know, circling things or scantrons, um, and then eventually doing te- doing uh, reports about them, and I would do all the data entry, or I would type his reports for him, and everything I do is always sort of like grounded in that, like from hearing that, because my dad was doing it. Like he wasn't doing divorces. He was doing like kids who have been rescued from cults. He was doing like kids who have committed murder. He's doing like kids who have been in, you know, families with generations of sexual abuse. Yeah. So like what I, what I learned and it was interesting. Cause I did it because I did it for like, I even did some, I think I even did it when I first moved out here when I needed work. So like I was doing it in my twenties. So I literally was starting when I was a child and kept doing it until I was in my 20s. And in Western Pennsylvania, where, you know, the economy is terrible or was terrible back then, um, you would actually see the same people in the same cycles. So, like, there's people who I who he was seeing as kids who then would come up again, like they would come up again when their kids were getting abused, when they were abusing their kids, who then would come up again as like the grandparents of the next generation of kids who are getting abused. It's sad. Um, so much of like my understanding of story comes from the psychological and comes from this idea of, of the internal motivation um, that like all my, all my work ends up coming from that place too. Um, most of my creator own stuff is about that sort of like, how 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 uh you know kind of like narrowed off we are from everyone else right that we're all in this this tight corner of uh like a tight corner of our own experience yeah the impact of trauma and how it affects motivation And, Uh, and again it's like you know it's like what i was saying earlier about the like all you know all the things that you go through in your life that make you unique they also make you alone and like jean gray is sort of like that's Again, like, I don't know how it's not like Stanley sat down. And he was like, this is going to be the character about trauma. But like, it's so inherent in her character that just every piece of her backstory and forward story is all about just the terrible things that like she's given a gift. And all that gift does is punish her sure. over and over and over. Um, and I think because I remember when they were doing them. The editor at the time said, like, we're looking for pitches for all of them. Who would you pitch for? Um, and I said Jean Grey, and his response was, nobody else is pitching her, which is crazy. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um, but I pitched the story because I, like, I think that, like, the, the story about the friend who died is a thing that you don't, doesn't get used a lot, but it's, like, it's canonical. Right. Um and I think the the like relationship that she has with Professor X, who's literally the only other person on the planet who can even kind of understand what she's going through. We was, uh was so on the, compelling, you know. On the podcast on purpose, we we've been doing the sixties books chronologically, but just a couple episodes ago, which will come out a few days after we record this. Uh, we did uh, a review of Bizarre Adventures number 27, which is the storyline in the 80s when Chris Claremont went back and told the story about how Jean Grey witnessed her friend's death when she was a kid. Yeah. And it's not until she's already uh, dead after the Phoenix uh, that we go back and finally get this backstory of trauma that Chris adds later. And it's such yeah. a gorgeous way to view this character 
who you understand completely differently when you look at her as someone who's been impacted by trauma and loss. Yeah. Uh, and your work, your work in that book is is really lovely. And and I, I, I hope I'm saying it right, but Nuno Plotti's uh, pencils in that are gorgeous. So, uh, so we'll be good. posting some images on social media as we advertise yeah. this episode. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. No, I love it. I'm really like immensely proud of of that book. It's it's funny, like when you do one shots, you kind of get again, like you sort of get left alone. Like you get there's a little bit of like um, because it's disconnected, you get like a little bit of freedom that you don't necessarily get when you're in the middle of a series or you're doing tie-ins or there's events going on. So like those moments are, are always like, I would always take those jobs. Like whenever I saw a chance to just like, Oh, I can just write about a character and who they are and not have to worry about everything else that's happening in the universe. Like that's, that was the attraction for me of those characters. And especially cause like we all know them, you know, writing Spider-Man's easy cause we all know how Spider-Man talks. Like, there's no trick to writing Spider-Man because we hear him in our heads. You know, there's a trick to writing a 10-year run like, you know, Dan Slott did and doing it great. You know, like, that's definitely a thing. But having those voices, having their voices in our heads and trying to find ways to sort of express this relationship that we had as kids, as outsider kids, almost almost every one of us, I think is is such a, like it's such a sort of treasure for, for a creative person um, because you really do get to explore yourself through this icon. So you can't use Marvel girl or Phoenix. I want to hear from everybody. What's Jean Grey's new code name? I, I would have said Firebird, but it's taken by somebody I like better. <laughs> <laughs> oh I mean, man, that's tough. It is weird they never came up with one that they just I mean, sort of. Marvel Sorry. Marvel Girl Marvel Girl is a terrible code name. Not only is it hard to get out of your mouth somehow, but it just doesn't roll. It just is. It's a terrible code name for her. I, th I think so many writers do not know what to do with Jean and haven't known what to do with Jean. I don't know that many long writers have had have known at all what to do with an adult Jean Grey since Morrison, honestly, and like. I don't know. I did read this this Marvel Girl one shot, and uh, my boyfriend actually reminded me of a line from it earlier this morning before I was going to hop on here. And it's something that like kind of been sticking with me all day. And it's where you had Jean talking to her younger like ghost self kind of, and saying like, "You do know that it's not your fault, right?" And then her younger self says, "Do you know that?" And like honestly, that's something that it resonates far beyond just like this little one shot. And it's just, it, it's an opportunity to, to think a little bit more about like the things that I place on myself. And I wish that I had that kind of thing stick with the Jean Grey character in the modern era, because a lot of times she's just a cipher and somebody who places too much, too much burden on themselves uh, to be at fault for their own shortcomings or their own like insecurities is like a really great character note for Jean Grey. Um, that being that's, said, I still don't know what to call her. That's me being at therapy. That's what therapy looks like. <laughs> that's me. Cause that is like literally every, every week for, you know, 20 years. It's like, it's, it's that, like, are you aware that everything in the world that you're not, that you can't do is not your fault? It's if we're looking at the original team, it's much easier for me to come up with some, like a list of great Cyclops stories, Archangel stories, Beast stories. Gene, there's only a handful of really great stories out there. Yeah. Uh, Josh, are you a Gene Gray fan? Um, you know, I like Jean. She's cool. Um, 
she was never like top tier for me. I think, you know, I was kind of peppered with the 90s X-Men version of Jean, who was a little less proactive, except for the Phoenix storylines. And even like, in my understanding of the character, she's just so like, I think she's weighed down by a lot of baggage because of Phoenix. And I think that like, the way that she's overcome it more recently and like X-Men Red and stuff has been really like a good direction for her. But I do agree there's like a risk of sometimes of her being a cipher. And yeah. I think Wanda has this problem too, to a degree, is like there aren't necessarily like a strong, clear res- uh, characterization for them at times. And they are kind of like weighed down by like this enormous power they have. But the, the storylines have to navigate around. This is such serious content, uh, which will be followed by the ridiculousness of this issue in just a moment. I, I do think uh, one of the things I would love to see on the Krakoan era now is the resurrection of Sarah Gray, her sister, and her niece and nephew, who have all been hinted to be mutants. And I think it would give, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a source of stories for Jean that we that we would love to see. Uh, she's uh, uh, They're doing great work with her in the current X-Men lineup, if you're reading it now. But... Um, yeah, I, I feel like we should we should get some good gene stories. Uh, well, uh, Joshua, what a what an honor to hear some of your methods and ideas uh, around the way you approach these characters and think about them. Uh, I'm definitely going to look up more of your creator on stuff uh, as we're as we're concluding after today. Um, you sold me. I'm excited to to read more. Uh, so with check that, out the life after. <laughs> That's the idea. That's all I have. That's all. That's all I have in the world. <laughs> so, with that, let's uh, let's transition into our issue for today. Now, just a, a little bit of context. We've seen uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch in the X Men line. This is the early 1960s. They were very popular with readers back then for one primary reason, and that's because they were the heroic bad guys. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants has appeared a half dozen times at this point. Uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are always the ones that are questioning if they belong with Magneto. They're the ones that are betraying him. Uh, Quicksilver in particular. Magneto tries to set off a nuke, but Quicksilver disarms it secretly. Uh, uh, Magneto's nearly abandoned them a few times. We've also seen a flashback in X-Men 4 of how Magneto rescued them from when a mob attacked them when they were in Transia. And so they feel very beholden to him, like they have to stay with him to be part of their team. This is the final appearance before they leave the Brotherhood in X-Men number 11, which is when the stranger comes down and takes Magneto off into space. And that's when Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch finally leave. But here we see them put into uh, an issue of Strange Tales. Uh, Let's hear your reactions to the cover. If I counted correctly, this cover has 66 fucking words on it. 66 on one cover. There's so many words. <laughs> tell, me your, tell me your thoughts on this cover, as we, particularly the top half, as we look at the torch and uh, thing fighting Wanda and, and uh, the Quicksilver. My favorite part is after writing a novel on the cover, it just says, and if this isn't enough, look what else is waiting inside. Like, yeah, <laughs> let's get to it, please. You had to try harder back then, I suppose. Like, we all think of the Marvel Age as being, like, everybody just bought everything. But, like, they were really, they were still just like now. There was characters and there were books that just always sold. And they were constantly trying to grow the line. Um, but, yeah, that's a lot. That's really a lot. And none of it is particularly, like, I'd much rather have a bigger, <laughs> I'd rather have a bigger image than a third of the page be text. That's crazy. Yeah, it's interesting. I it's know. actually like a half of the page, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if this was like an affect of the era, but they just called the Human Torch the Torch, 
I don't know if they did that sometimes or not, but that always like stands out because there's so many words on the cover. I'm like, you could have given one more word and called it a human word. But they it's want nice symmetry want... between the torch and the thing. Yeah. Yeah, they want that. They want it to line up. They also call Quicksilver the dazzling Quicksilver, which is not the not the super <laughs> fast. Uh, what do you guys think of Wanda's 60s costume? Oh, I'm, the, I've always the, been a fan. Oh, really? The like the window, the like giant. It looks like it's from Dune. It's oh, all I see it. It's all the headpiece. hat are you talking about? Yeah, the headpiece. The hat, the hat is like absolutely insane. I don't love the yeah. hat. I love the entire rest of the outfit. The big cartoonish cape, the like the boots and everything like that. It's the it hat. Great, the hat is a full toilet cool. seat. <laughs> yeah, the hat is like it's weird. It looks to me like she like cut out part of a pizza box and like just jammed yeah. it on there. But. Like the Galactus headdress kind of thing, right? <laughs> That's not uh, what I first. I first started reading though, so I've been used to it for a very long time. I do think a lot of the pencils in this issue are really great, actually. Um, uh, so we'll we'll get into that. So uh, Josh, would you want to take us through the first uh, handful of pages? Kind of let us know what happens in this issue. We'll talk about it. Yeah. So I guess I want to do like a bird's eye view of it. But basically, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are hanging out somewhere. It actually looks like they're kind of in like like a modern mod home. I don't know where we were hiding out in continuity at the time, but it is like, you can see some stylish furniture and like, they're not in like a cave or like a villain's lair necessarily, right? So like, they're in like the Howard Johnson or something. Quicksilver is like, we gotta get out of here. This is our chance. Magneto's, you know, Magneto's away. And Wanda's like fiercely loyal to Magneto. um, And she doesn't want to go anywhere. But she'll go anywhere Quicksilver will, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, he's had wrong and she'll follow. Um, at least this version of Wanda. And so they decide they're going to, like, well, actually, we should... He's, like, ready to leave right now, and then she trips him up using her hex bolts, which is, like, kind of fun. It's like she's always able to keep him in check, but um, she doesn't necessarily always do that. So she talks about how she's loyal to... Uh, Magneto for saving her life when they were attacked by, I guess, a mob that was trying to kill her for being a witch. So that's pretty clear. And you can kind of see, like, it does look like they're in a villain's lair, actually, but it seems like it's more of, like, designery on the inside. So, uh, let's see. I bet they're on Island M, which is Magneto's little remote island that's still being used in the comics, by the way. Oh, that must be where they are then. Um, Before he put all the tentacles all over it, apparently. Yeah, and so they just feel like they don't have anyone to help them. They don't have anywhere to go. And even Quicksilver says as much. You know, no one to turn to, no one to advise us. And you can kind of see all, like, the 60s Marvel heroes there. You see Giant Man and Thor and Daredevil. And it's like, oh, if only Daredevil were here, things would be a lot better. (laughs) I don't know how that would help. (laughs) Sorry, Pietro. Um, So it just shows how, like, desperate they are. And they can't find these heroes, you know? Even though this was the 60s Marvel where you, like, open a window and Hellcat falls in, like, they, they're completely unable, unable to find Spider-Man or Thor. So Wanda's like, wait, the, you know, the Baxter building, we can go to the Fantastic Four because we know where they live. And so that's about as good as planet any, right? They're going to go to the Baxter building. They're going to have the Fantastic Four help them out and get them out of this mess of kind of living with Magneto and being these evil mutant terrorists. Um, there's there's something like so Patty Hearst about these first couple of pages. For those that don't know Patty Hearst, she was a rich girl who was kidnapped by some <laughs> terrorist people who kind of turned her turned her to their cause 
uh, it's 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 uh it's it's an interesting thing because you're seeing the Scarlet Witch be very loyal to Magneto, even though he's been we really gave our word. awful to her. He's so mean to her. <laughs> yeah, like everyone's kind of mean to Wanda except for Pietro in these early appearances. But that's kind of like also just like that's the era too. Like they weren't very nice to Jean either. They're like, Jean, use your telepathy to scour these pots or whatever. So um I so- love I love Quicksilver's costume here though. No, I love his costume and like, I love the kind of baggy running suit that he has in this era. Like it works for me. Um, So we go from uh, Island M to we go to the Baxter building and Johnny Storm. You guys have to see this panel, podcast listeners, but he is like giving off wild bisexual energy, just lounging. (laughs) And he just like, he's like reading comic books and he's just having like a lazy day. And then things getting pranked by the Yancey Street gang, which is nice. They're like making fun of his little uh, blue diaper that he's wearing. Um, and so they're upset about this. And then their television gets interrupted by a news report. It says the X-Men have, re- uh, they've released the first photographs of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So I guess up to this point, they weren't that publicly known. I'm kind of curious where this falls into like the history of the Brotherhood. But, so at this point, uh, the Brotherhood, Magneto has attacked the Cape Canaveral base or whatever that was in the first issue. Uh, they took over Santo Marco, the country, briefly, and then they tried to recruit the Blob and the Submariner and fought the X-Men both times. Uh, that's been the extent of their appearances. But they did take over a country, so they were probably in the news at least a little bit. Yeah, so this is, like, I think they said like specifically these are like first official photos. So I don't know if it took them like the weekend to get the photos developed or whatever, but we have photos of like Magneto, uh, Mastermind, looks like Toad, Quicksilver, and uh, Scarlet Witch. And so it's like, be on the lookout if you see them like run, basically. And so, um, you know, they say things like, Johnny's like, oh, they don't seem so tough. We could take them. And Johnny flashes back to an adventure he had with Iceman where, uh, I don't really actually know what they did in this particular storyline. I think they fought pirates or something. It's kind of <laughs> they, that's actually what happened. Uh, so for for our oh, longer, is it that one? yeah, for our longer term <laughs> listeners, we have two issues referenced there that we've actually covered on the podcast. So Fantastic Four twenty eight, which is the interview we did with Bob Quinn, uh, and then we also have referenced Strange Tales number twenty, which is the interview we did with Susan Kirtley. So if you'd like to go back and reference those, we have a lot of fun things to say about both of those stories in those episodes. Uh, and so in this flashback uh, to this pirate adventure, Johnny's like, oh, we had such a good time teaming up. And he refers to um, Iceman as a great little scrapper, which I thought was cute. Um, so, you know, he's nostalgic for his time with the X-Men. And he's like, you know, we could, if, they, if the X-Men can't defeat the Brotherhood, because they're always fighting to like a standstill, I guess, at this point, like we might be in trouble too. So... That's kind of where we are uh, at the moment. And then we go into page four and we see Quicksilver and Wanda in their rare civilian disguises. And I'm kind of obsessed with this very brief look because they're, you know, super villains have to dress in the colors that their costumes are in. And so we've got like Quicksilver in like his green business hat and you can kind of see his little booties underneath. And Wanda's just wearing like a full like swim robe basically with like a hood. <laughs> so they're walking into the Baxter building and they're really polite about it. There's these two guards 
And they're like, we need to see the Fantastic Four. And the guard's like, not without authorization. And so Wanda uses her hex magic to ensnare um, one of the guards with a fire hose. And so the guards basically give up at this point. They're like, oh, you can control a fire hose. Like, we'll let them deal with it upstairs. Um, and I, I would like to posit that throughout the entirety of the appearances of the Scarlet Witch, Stan Lee did not know what the word hex meant. Because it makes <laughs> it makes no sense. Oh, it's like she's the only it, female like, who can draw hex. Like she can use magic. Just say she can use magic. Like what's how is it a hex? Like what hex. are you hexing to have a, a fire hose come to life and wrap itself around two guys? Like, I mean, we come to understand her powers later as they impact probability. But hex, I think he used as like something unlucky happening. Uh, so think, later they later they change that to like really probability. Fire hose so wrap me up. It is very unlikely that the fire hose would temporarily come to life exactly then to wrap itself around those guys. I, yeah, feel, I, like, I feel like this is the first image we get of Scarlet Witch being very scary, though. Like that image of her like face in red, she's really frightening, actually. I like that touch, but unfortunately, that does mean that the hex looks like it takes a long time to happen. It does seem like she, <laughs> she stops and it says she stands there staring at it for a while. And the guys are commenting on it. The the guards are like, "What's she doing? She's looking at the fire hose." Yeah, this, this lady's acting weird. We should probably <laughs> do something. No, you do something. What's your? Well, look at that. There's a fire hose. Yeah, it's it's a long time. When the security guard sees her unraveling the fire hose, he says, "What's that tingly sensation I feel?" And I would just like to put it on the record that when I see a big fire hose, I also get a tingly sensation. <laughs> hey oh. Um, so Wanda's staring down this fire hose for like minutes, perhaps. We have no idea. <laughs> and it finally wraps up the guards. And uh, they're like, they're very shocked by this. Um, but they're also like pretty complacent. They're like, well, the FF will handle it when they get to it. And it's like, well, okay, well, not really great security guards, but I guess it's like, it's a simpler era. Um, and it, that's like, that's kind of what happens in the first four pages. Like, the, you know, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are like, we need to get away from Magneto. Let's go to the Fantastic Four. And Johnny and Ben are just goofing around. And it happens to be them there that day. This like, this story would be so different if it was Raider Sue. But I guess we'll kind of get into how Johnny <laughs> reacts shortly. So if we jump back to that panel of Johnny laying on the floor, talking on the phone, it's my favorite panel in the whole comic book, I think. And there's some great ones. Uh, but he's talking to Dory Evans, who's his 60s girlfriend. We talked about her a lot on the podcast uh, in the pirate episode. We love Dory. Uh, there's also, I was going to throw out, the Yancey Street gang in the early comics was kind of this gang that was never really seen, but they were always playing pranks on the thing in the early issues. He'd open a box and there'd be a pie that'd shoot in his face. It'd be like, oh, Yancey Street gang. Uh, we re we learn in a much later Mark Wade comic that a lot of these pranks in the 60s were actually being played by the Human Torch, who would just put like notes on things that said from the Yancey Street gang. So I kind of think the Torch was doing this here. The thing gets this letter in the mail that says, he, he reads out loud, the Yancey Street gang says I ought to carry a teething ring if I'm going to keep running around in, the, in town in a pair of blue diapers. <laughs> if you just look at this as Johnny trolling the thing, it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, that is really good, especially since the torch is a real shit in early Fantastic Four. Like, first 20 issues, he is just spending his time being cruel to the thing. I feel like uh, it's not a lot of effort, though. I mean, just wrote him a letter. Like, you should, they could have sent a picture. He could have drawn him with the with a, you know, pacifier and a baby bonnet on. Like, he really could have gone the extra mile. This is the shit post of the 60s. Yeah, this is the shitty one. Yeah. 
Also, those hand drawings of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that appear on the TV, uh, Toad is looking his absolute best here. <laughs> was that Toad? I thought that was Blob. Nope, that's Toad. <laughs> who's supposed to be? Who's it supposed to be on the bottom left? Uh, that's Mastermind. Oh, right. The illusion guy who always looks like a man in a brown paper bag back in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other thoughts on these first few pages before we keep moving? I think this is a great setup, actually. I think it's delicious 60s stuff. No, it's just so of the era, right? Like, it's like, uh, it's, I, I didn't know this crossover had happened, but it like makes perfect sense, right? Because Johnny and Ben have like this sibling tension between them and it's Wanda and Quicksilver don't have any real like tension between them they're like loving doting siblings that's a really great point i was i I was really struck by that here like not only the sibling relationship but how like it's also like how spider-man first has his crossover with fantastic four and like breaks in and gets into a fight just because he's trying to look for a job you know and this is like a very similar situation except for it's the two dumbest members of the fantastic four there so hijinks have to ensue necessarily but like start all the chaos here and is also like please let us stay with Magneto where Quicksilver is the one who's like no he's tarnishing our honor and I'm just like profoundly struck by the weird reversals going on in their dynamic yeah and like Quicksilver and Wanda are coming in with like the best of intentions right like they are excited from like that fire hose incident like they're here for like good reasons yeah, they're just trying to they're just trying to get away from their abuser and Wanda's a little spooky. That's all. You know? Petra's extremely impatient. My nerd shows most when I say things like this, but uh when I do the trials on Grey Malk and I read the whole character chronology, and we've done two and a half hour trials on Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. I feel like I know the characters pretty well. This is my favorite era of Quicksilver. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the nice guy who's concerned about morals, but literally in just a few minutes, we're going to see him ranting about homo sapiens. So this is is like not a Quicksilver I know at all. Like I know him from being in the Avengers and being like half a second away from Magneto is right. We should have wiped out the humans long ago. They always betray us. They always do Wanda. That's the only Quicksilver I've mostly known. I mean, he's full supervillain sometimes. Now, Joshua, you've worked with Quicksilver in some forms. Uh, What do you like about this character? Well, so I have a, I have a, I have a theory about the character in a bit, like in a larger sense, and this comic like enforces it for me. I, like, so I'm obsessed with the working practices of comics in the '60s, of the Stanley, like, oh, I wrote the, pl- I wrote the plot, because I don't, he wasn't writing plots. He was just like they were just doing whatever, and then he was filling them in. I'm convinced he didn't think they were siblings, and he just read it, like the artist didn't think they were siblings, and he read it as siblings. Because whenever you see them together, they don't look like siblings. Like, they're far too... Like, they're walking like man and wife when they're coming in together. When he's, like, looking over her after she's been hit. Like, it's very... Like, that's how a husband... He's, like, cradling her. And, like, it's very, very weird. So I'm convinced. I'm just convinced that Stan is like, Well, they're gonna be saving his sister. It'll be fine. I'll just fill it in here. Without it does seem to be plan. a ball that Ultimate Comics picked up on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a line in a later comic book where uh, Quicksilver's having marital trouble with Crystal of the Inhumans, mm-hmm. and he admits, like, you know, when my sister married the Vision, I transferred my love for her to you, Crystal. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not an okay phrasey. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I think he's int- like I'm. I'm a big Flash fan. Like I love the Flash, and he's such a different. 
like he's such a different version of a speedster, right? Like all the all the flashes and flash family on the DC side, it's always about sort of like it's almost like a apolitical is the wrong word, but apolitical, right? Like it's very much about sort of like big conceptual stuff and very like the speed force and like trying to see like what is time travel like all the all this like big sci-fi stuff whereas like quicksilver because he's grounded as a mutant and because it's about his relationship with wanda like you get this sort of like almost like fleshier version of it where you you almost buy that he's like you buy his speed more because it doesn't feel like he can travel in time by running so fast. It does like it doesn't feel like he has all that stuff. It feels like he's actually like a grounded proper character. Um, and he does some cool shit with his speed in this issue. We'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He does. I wish Northstar could see this issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you know, Quicksilver gets to be. It, it may be his one character trait, but he gets to be mad. You know, in a way that the Flash never gets to be angry. He's always so composed and kind of like Wonder Bread in that way. Where it's yeah. like very tragic and operatic and like vengeful and like there's a lot more meat to it, right? Um, he doesn't get as much, yeah, like we were saying, he doesn't get as much play as maybe he he deserves because there's a lot of like interesting tension within him. So yes. uh, oh, I'm sorry, did I interrupt? No. Okay, so Steve, do you want to take us through the next couple pages? I, I would love to. I'd be very happy to, actually. I'm glad that I got assigned some of the middle pages here because there's a lot of, like, really prime Quicksilver content, and I'm a big Pietro fan. Uh, he is, as you said, extremely different from, like, say, a Barry or a Wally. Uh, he's not just late. He's ex extremely frustrated and extremely mad all of the time because nobody else can keep up and nobody will. Uh, and a consequence of that is that in this issue, when he is going to look for help from the Fantastic Four, um, you know, he kind of speeds on in without knocking. He doesn't bother with an invitation. Wanda's already taken care of that for him downstairs, and she's on the way, the slow way up by the elevator while he takes the stairs much quicker. And this is the thing with Pietro, his entire existence has always been a problem with him, but he does not know how to turn off the supervillain voice. And I firmly believe that this entire issue would have gone extremely swimmingly if Pietro hadn't walked in at sonic speed and immediately started declaiming in what absolutely sounds like a super villain voice, but it's not. Like, he literally walks in on Ben and is like, ah, I have found you at last. My name is Quicksilver. Perhaps you have heard of me? But I'm sure, like, if he said it in a different tone, probably would have been fine. But we know that that's the one he's using. And well, plus, like, they, plus, he has, like, an Eastern European accent, which just makes it sound more villainous. <laughs> yes, of course. Naturally villainous, us Eastern Europeans. <laughs> but he, like, literally walks in and does that, and they have just seen him on the news as, like, public terrorist number one. Watch out for this guy. And Johnny's got some weird feelings about mutants that he needs to work through and will. But yeah, like right up, Johnny's like, I got to I gotta flame on. I got to take care of this guy. I don't know what's happening here. And Quicksilver's like, wait, don't. I want to tell you all about, you know, like the Magneto thing. And they, they just won't let him. Uh, despite being the fastest man alive, uh, Johnny cuts him to the quick and is just like, didn't expect us to go into action so fast. We're ready for you, buddy. And Quicksilver... One of my favorite things about Quicksilver is that he is his father's son. That's right, Magneto is still his father. Um, he's <laughs> absolutely his father's son in many ways, but in especially the way that if somebody tells him, hey, I could have taken care of you, don't worry, I could have beaten you up, he's going to forget 
everything he was just talking about to say, you fool, you think you can impress me with your power? I am so fast. You don't even know. <laughs> he immediately flies into a hole like, watch how much faster than your fireballs I am, Johnny. It is already about a competition with him. And it really, in his mind, almost always is. And so he begins dodging Johnny's fireballs and engaging instead of just being like, hey, come down for a second. I need to tell you this thing really fast. And starts running in the thing's direction. The thing winds up to clobber him because the thing is going to do that. And it's the thing I love about the thing. And it's the thing the thing does. It's always Wanda, clobbering time. It's always clobbering time. And Wanda has just, of course, at the unluckiest possible moment, just finally stepped off the elevator. And all she sees is her brother and the thing in a fight. Johnny Storm is throwing fireballs everywhere, and she obviously assumes correctly that she should be protecting her brother, who is being attacked without cause. Yes, he looks and is and talks like a supervillain, but he is, in fact, not actually attacking them. Um, so Wanda uses her hex abilities uh, to attempt to, like, defuse the situation, and Wanda is treated so unfairly in this. Not only did it take forever for her hex to work earlier, but, like, she literally puts a hex on the thing that makes him a swing and a miss, Quicksilver, swing right back around and knock a giant, very inconveniently placed piece of machinery that falls on her and knocks her out. And that she has time to think about not being able to get out of the way of. Extremely funny. Really unfortunate. But, you know. Well, she needs that panel. She needs that panel where she thinks in order to use her <laughs> hex power again. And she just doesn't have that. Yes, I room. It's didn't a, have time. It's a six-panel grid. I don't know where you would put it. <laughs> what was that? That thud panel really made me laugh. The, uh, the giant thud, thud, yeah. Oh, Wanda. Oh, no, no, not already. <laughs> it's a close-up on her face doing, like, a very, um, a very, like, Kirby Romance-esque, like, throwing her hand to the side and flailing. It's it's very Gene in the X-Men 92 animated series, if you remember. It's very, it's very like, 1940s Hollywood. Like, yes. oh, right? Like, <laughs> it is a it's a full swoon into unconsciousness from being hit by a giant piece of machinery that she <laughs> caused. But then Pietro holds her so tenderly. <laughs> yeah, Pietro rushes into action to defend his sister as, you know, the world turns and the talk the clock keeps ticking. We, we know that this is what he's going to do. He immediately rushes over and is like flying into a rage. A very classic thing. If you punch his sister, even if she punches herself, if you're in the room, Pietro is absolutely going to blame you. He's going to hate you forever. And he's going to swear vengeance against all mankind. And that is essentially what he proceeds to do. He's just like, I knew that this was a mistake. I, we should never have come here. You know, I didn't want any harm to befall you. And Johnny takes this moment to say, I think the funniest thing in the entire issue is that Johnny Storm is like, hold on now there thing. I kind of know what he's going through. You know, I have a sister too. <laughs> like Johnny just like suddenly remembers that he's a sister and is like, oh man, I just, the brain is working, empathy muscles stretching, <laughs> grasping. I think I know what he's going through. And also she gets knocked out every month in my comic book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I constantly have to rush over to suicide and swear vengeance against homo sapiens. Look, <laughs> thing, like I'm just like a mutant. I, I have like, a I like that last panel that, like, his face got redrawn. It's just so <laughs> weird. Like, his face is just super weird. Like, the angle's kind of off. Are you talking about um, the panel where I'm he's, like, sure. looking down at Wanda? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Frankie Ray, um, Nova, Herald of Galactus, doing a really good inking job on this, mm -hmm. like really drawing in all of the mm -hmm. forehead lines of his concern and worry. <laughs> but he's kind of like cradling her in like this extremely like 
I think of this as like a, a saint, like in a in an icon, you know? <laughs> it, it's not exactly a Pieta, but he's definitely got like the gravitas and the graven face. And he's he's acting like she has just been murdered or is on death's door. And that's kind of what Pietro thinks anytime Wanda is hit by anything. To which he immediately immediately flips around and says, and now I shall teach you what it means to anger a mutant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they attacked us without cause, and now I must uh, eradicate them, essentially, which takes us into the, the next scene, which is like just a gigantic display of their powers. Josh, did you want to take this one? Sorry, Joshua. Uh, yeah. Um so this is the this is the page where you get to see Quicksilver do all of the all of the trademark uh like the basic speedster 101, right? Where he's dodging the fireballs and he's out racing the fire and he's gets he does this he makes the thing spin around. Um I love that somehow the fact that the thing must weigh like two tons does not in any way impact Quicksilver's skill. Like he's just totally able to just whip him off his feet and start swinging him around, which is really a lot of force. Like there's a lot going on there and not, and then Ben has no reaction whatsoever. Which like, is ironically Jean's signature move back in the sixties often too, is she'll pick up the bad guy and just spin him around in the ball in the air and then drop him. Did anybody else hear like the Harlem Globetrotters theme going around in their head while they were reading this particular page? Cause I had like the whistles going. Um, and then we get on the, the next page we, as they're, as they're monologuing at each other, um, we get the trademark again, like the number one thing that will happen anytime you have any character who can move quickly, you all, you will guaranteed if you don't do it, you're just doing it wrong. Right. Is that you get the, uh, you get the funnel, right. And having <laughs> what I like is that like, it should just make Johnny's fire go out. Like that's what should actually happen. Right. Cause he's like the oxygen's getting sucked out of him, but instead he just, thumps himself on the head there's lots of everybody making weird um weird like uh overly sounded overly sound effect uh bodily harm that doesn't seem like the right one like thump does not seem like the right sound effect for me um and i love that like i love that ben is just like trying to figure out why punching quicksilver doesn't work it's like the whole the entire fight is Ben being like, but I'm punching, but but I'm punching, and I punched again, and it, but I'm it Why didn't work. Just working. Why isn't punching where it's all I have is punching? Um, and then uh, as we're going on, we get to the uh, what's my actually my favorite part of the comics. First of all, we have the the fire the fire net, which is like the most <laughs> like what what how. What like he does he have a thing like there's no it's the the way that again I like to blame Stan Lee for stuff so I blame Stan Lee for being like yeah that makes sense yeah I'm not gonna put any dialogue to explain how he can form a fence made of fire out of he does this he does this pretty often in the city and it's such an intricate use of fire the way that you have to like. Like this is like recreate this net. It's nuts. And have this to, is like have when to keep doing you get those it. You just, miracles of magnetism. You just have to sit there. Like he would just have to sit there. He would have to be as fast as Quicksilver, actually, ironically, and be going around drawing the things and like doing them as fast as he can in the air. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem what, effective. What's on fire? 
I mean, the, the, the air. The air. Is, I guess, right? That he's not touching in any way that he's far from, which would just kill everybody because that would mean all the oxygen is combusting. So you'd all be dead. But because there's now a fire cage up, what does the thing do? Well, so because apparently his rock body, which is supposed to be completely impregnable to anything, is delicate suddenly. Suddenly, out of what never does this anywhere else, right? Like, is he ever, certainly not prior to this that I can think of, has Ben been concerned about temperature? Has he ever been like, oh dear, I don't want to. I don't want to get melted, I guess. No, and he just has it lying there, right? It's just yeah. like, oh, there's my asbestos, dude. That's sized for me. Yeah. It feels like just Stanley in, wanted to talk about fire safety. And was just like, remember, kids, put on your asbestos fire suit. Make sure you have a fitted, a fitted asbestos suit laying on the ground in case you're attacked by supervillains and you build a fire cage that causes your body to overheat. 1940s, huh. 1940s Human Torch, Jim Hammond fought the asbestos lady and 60s Johnny Storm fought the asbestos man. Those are real characters in Marvel canon. And they mm. both they both have um, horrible cancer. It's Literally, as there's a whole storyline about, about asbestos man getting horrible cancer years later. That's oh. a thing that happens. <laughs> Who wrote it? Who wrote that? Oh, I will. I will find it for you while you keep going. I'm. I'm on board. I want to read this now. Um, and then, like, again, the mystery of Ben being unable to just punch people, which seems like depowering Ben is like the weird, like, I understand that it's Human Torch's book, right? But that Ben can't punch because he's wearing an asbestos suit seems a bit much. Yeah, he doesn't even, like, knock out Quicksilver, even though he's, like, strong enough to knock over Galactus, because he's wearing a a suit. Yeah, well, like he at one point he punches uh, Godzilla, and I believe Godzilla falls over in yep. the Godzilla comics. So you would think that even wearing a, a genuinely not ill-fitting suit, it told, like how could the suit fit him at all if it didn't fit? Right, like it wouldn't go on him. It's not like it wouldn't fit him. Um, so he can't punch. He's useless. Wanda wakes up and uses her again. Uses her. I can't get over the mask. The mask is so terrible. <laughs> it looks, it's the mask, the, the, like, I remember when I first moved to LA and coming, I lived in Pittsburgh and then I lived in Boston and then I came out here and I remember going to like my first public bathroom and like above the toilet, I remember looking at this, there was these paper things hanging there and I was like, man, it looks like the Scarlet Witch's hat. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what it was. And it's we, they were, uh, toilet seat covers. We call it a toilet were. seat hat for a reason. That's <laughs> all I can think of. On that second to last page when Wanda's waking up next to the fire, I just want to like recaption just that those two panels where she's there and just have her say, oh, fuck. Fuck you guys. You hit me with a fucking machine. Take this. <laughs> I just and and again, like so for I, I like again, her powers are so ill conceived. Why would the size of the of the thing impact her powers if it's a hex? Yeah, I don't know. She hasn't learned much yet. Uh, uh, Joshua, how does the issue end? Well, that's it. That was the word. It ends well. It really does. <laughs> uh, it ends when they decide to stop fighting. And Ben and Johnny decide not to follow them. Because Reed would want them to. 
No, really. <laughs> no, yeah, really. That's, that's no, really, dear listeners. Happens. No, really, dear listeners. It's a very, very strange moment of just like that. I love that it's Quicksilver and Wanda are sort of like arm in arm, like skipping off like the Wizard of Oz as Ben and Johnny are like, but it'll be fine. I'm sure we'll see them again sometime. But, but right before that, a storm outside starts and the rain blows in through the window and puts out all of the Human Torch's flames. <laughs> it's great that Wanda suddenly has the powers of storm yeah. and earlier had the powers of a machine falling on her. Yeah. It's well, she, had, so... she, had t- she had time to think about the weather. Ah, you see. Well, and this is like the penultimate appearance of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch right before they leave the Brotherhood and join the Avengers. So these are the characters that we grow to love over time. Uh, Josh, what did you love or not love about this issue? Oh, gosh. I mean, I really love that panel of Wanda focusing on the fire hose. Like, it's like hilarious, but it's like really like intensely drawn. And I mostly like that Quicksilver is right because he's so rarely right. You know what I mean? Like, He's so misguided for every single thing he does. And so this is like, he had the best of intentions and Johnny and Ben screwed it up. So I do love that element. And like, we get to see Wanda use her powers in some kind of interesting ways. Um, I didn't know that this was like the lead up basically to them joining the Avengers. That kind of makes, that all lines up. Like, this is like a more humanizing, I guess they're mutants, mutinizing uh, (laughs) turn for them. Uh, Joshua, same question. What did you love or not love? I like, I just I love Ben and Johnny stuff so much. Like I love the two of them together. So I, like I'm I'm game for virtually anything with the two of them. Um, and I think the sort of like the weird the weird mentality of like that by this point, like there hadn't been that much of the Marvel Age, but we'd already been so deep into comics history that the idea of the misunderstanding fight had already been established so clearly that like they put no effort in to explain why they're having the misunderstanding or to rectify it in any way where it's just like oh he ran in too fast we better kick his ass and then it's like well i guess we're done now they should leave and there's no there's no in between like i love i love the sort of like the simpleness of it again in a world of like self-contained easy to tell like one shot stories it's sort of like it's like a wrestling match right where they do the whole fight and then like okay we're done we have to go to commercial now and everyone gets up and marches like even like because like the last you know at the very bottom of it like that last caption is actually saying like but hang out no seriously there's more guys listen no i don't understand this one just sort of ended but the next one dr strange gonna be great i'm just saying hang out uh, it, it, I like how self-contained it is. I like how it's just one very simple story. And I think it's very well told for 11 pages. We got the, the arc, you know, it started and it climaxed and it ended. Uh, Steve, what did you like or dislike? I will. I, I liked a lot about this issue just for the exploration of, uh, Quicksilver's character and the allowing of Wanda to do like some really big stuff at the end to like end the thing. But I gotta say, like, I'm stuck on this. This is my favorite thing in the whole issue. It's just this one panel of like a very lovingly drawn Quicksilver looking up surrounded by flames with his hair all about and just screaming, Magneto was right. There can never be peace between Homo Superior and Homo Sapien. You are our born enemy. And this is in response to like the two dumbest members of the Fantastic Four mistaking <laughs> Earth and doing a fire cage. He is like, in this one panel, Quicksilver is in hell. 
and he has just realized that he is stuck there and that that is the the hell of being on earth with the fly scans around him and he has just come to such a dramatic conclusion that i feel like he should be weeping a tear and singing like sing talking this in the musical version it no, is high drama and i love it how is that panel not on merchandise? Like that, that panel really struck me as well. Also bisexual Johnny Storm laying down on phone. Yes. <laughs> this panel is going to be my new Twitter profile picture. Like yeah. this is fantastic. I am sticking with it. We, uh, we, left, we left about how we think Johnny has a crush on Iceman in their little team up in Strange Tales 120. Uh, but in the future for our X-Men fans, during Uncanny Avengers, Johnny has a brief relationship with Rogue. And Leah Williams has been on this podcast talking about how Dawkin and Johnny had a little tryst. So there's the <laughs> there's the X-Men of it all. Uh, as we are wrapping up today, let me uh, reference the Asbestos Lady and the Asbestos Man quickly. I did my homework. Asbestos Lady first shows up in 1947 in Captain America and Human Torch comics. Later, they put some retroactive World War II stuff in place for her in the Invaders and Captain America and Saga of the original Human Torch series, which were written in 77, 81, and 90. I believe her only modern appearance is in Marvel Knights Spider-Man number nine, which is in 2005. Uh, the Asbestos Man has only shown up three times. So Strange Tales number 111 in 1963, where he fights Johnny in this series. Then he shows up, uh, and, and here's to answer your question, Joshua. Uh, Elliot Kalin writes a series called mm -hmm. Fear Itself, The Home Front, number six, where we see the asbestos man in 2011. And then more recently, Evan Dorkin wrote uh, Fantastic Four, Marvel's Snapshots, number one, where we see the asbestos man again. And the ca cancer is referenced in both of those later stories. Uh, so you, there's more about the asbestos man than you ever need to know. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most ridiculous Marvel villains of all time. And that's saying something. That's really, really, that really saying something. Uh, this was a blast. I love sitting here and nerding out with people that I that I respect and am uh, intrigued and inspired by. I hope you guys had a great time today. This was a lot of fun to uh, Joshua to get to know you better, uh, Steve and Josh to see you guys again and to be able to uh, nerd out. This was great. As we are wrapping up, let's go in the same order that we did introductions. Uh, let us know where people can find you online. And what do we have to look forward to coming up from you in your work? Uh, Gray Malkin Lane, you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter or just under Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram. I keep my own social media private because I've got kids right after this episode reviewing uh, X-Men number 43 with the writer Steve Fox. So we're going to be super excited to bring that to you as well. Uh, uh, Steve, what do we have? Where can we find you and what do we have to look forward to? Uh, well, uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And you can also find me podcasting every Sunday. Well, the episodes come out other times, but I record every Sunday with Exit for Podcast. And we will be continuing our extremely cool coverage of every issue of the current Jed McKay Moon Knight series. And I really hope that people will tune in, listen, and check it out because it is really something special. And we got to literally magical. We got to interview Jed McKay on this podcast. I was a fan before. I love it even more after. And uh, just throwing it out there, I would love to come talk Moon Knight with you on your pod sometime. Shoot me a message. I, I absolutely will. I love working with you. And yeah, we can make I, that. I, I adore his work on Moon Knight. I think it's amazing. Uh, Josh, I do where, too. Josh, where can people find you? Sure. Uh, you can find me at Lost is Keys Man uh, on social media or uh, I guess 
And please look for Hulkling and Wiccan. Uh, it's going to be in print. It's being collected as part of Marvel's Pride offerings. So Hulkling and Wiccan number one with these beautiful Luciano Vecchio cover or Peach Momoko if you prefer. And so that's the next big thing. So uh, look for me there, order 10,000 copies and I'll consider it a personal favor. <laughs> we also, you also get to see Josh's original creations of uh, Hulkling and Wiccan's virtual lovers and they're great characters. It's so fun. Lovers from another reality. I'm looking forward to the, the swooning uh, messages I'll get about that. It's my hope, Josh, that you have work coming up that you can't talk about yet. I love, love, love your work. Yeah, so um, I'll definitely be back to talk about those once I can talk about those. Yay! Yay! And Joshua, how about you? Um, you can find me online at uh, on Twitter at Josh Fialkov. Um, you can get my whole back, almost my whole back catalog of of creator owned stuff. Uh, there's a few things missing, but almost everything is from Oni Press, um, and I think everything is currently in print right now. I think, pretty sure. Um, I do a podcast because everybody does a podcast now. It's what we do. Just we're like as a society, what the pandemic did is it made us all just make podcasts. Um, I do a podcast with my wife and my 11 year old where we make her watch movies that she doesn't want to watch. <laughs> and um, she reviews them and is very angry at us for it the whole time. Um, and that's the little miss movies podcast. Um, and I think you can, I think if you search that on Twitter, you'll find it as well. And I, I got, I got I secret listen. stuff and I got secret stuff that I can't talk about that's coming up soon comics video games and tv stuff that i can't talk about that's always my favorite thing to hear because then i get to watch the news uh i am also a dad who subjects his children to movies from my childhood that they don't want to see uh ghostbusters or uh, goonies as examples and uh i'm going to make them watch flight of the navigator this weekend mm -hmm. and i know they're gonna hate it <laughs> my our, our like most confusing of everything we've shown her the movie she liked the most God help me. Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. Loves that's it. a, that's a what? daughter. Watched it, got to the end and she was like, can we watch it again? Like, I mean, that's it? a great film, but that's a lot for a kid. It's a great film. It. I've never gotten to the end of it and been like, yeah, can I watch oh, that again? It's got a great twist ending. I'll tell you that. It's no, she's great. And like watching her cause she doesn't know what the ending is watching her watch it. And like when you got to the ending and she was just like, Oh my God. Oh, 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 God. really that? Oh, really? That's what, that's what it means. And you're just, it was, oh, it's great. So it's a lot of that. We Fantastic. tried really hard to only do movies she likes, but it's very hard. It's very hard. She really hated The Godfather a lot. You know, I can understand hating The Godfather and loving Citizen Kane. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you guys, this was so much too. fun. Steve, I love nerding out with you. Uh, Josh and Joshua, I'm a huge fans of both of your work. I'm uh, honored to spend this time with you. It's my favorite thing to be able to spend time collaborating with intelligent, creative, nerdy people that I respect. So thank you for the gift of your time this evening. Uh, we will see everybody back here uh, next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement 